Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. As inflation hits the United States, is it time to lift tariffs imposed on Chinese imports? That's the question the Biden administration is currently debating. How big a difference will it make and where do the tariffs fit into the increasingly tense relationship between China and the United States? And for the first time in history, the United Nations Security Council permanent members explained in a separate meeting why they cast a veto vote. And the idea was pushed by a country with a record of frequent veto use. Why the change and what difference will it make? Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you live from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. The Biden administration is reportedly weighing whether or not to remove some tariffs on Chinese imports to combat escalating inflation in the United States. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said some of the tariffs are harming American families and businesses, but not everyone is on board with this idea. Why the different opinions if the tariffs are believed to hurt U.S. interests? As the next U.S. midterm elections draws near, what's at stake? I'm pleased to be joined from Tel Aviv, Israel, by Professor Jiang Gong from the University of International Business and Economics at Tel Aviv campus, and from Bangkok, Thailand, by Jeffrey Towson, consultant and host of the Tech Strategy podcast. Gentlemen, uh, welcome to The Point. So according to the latest data released by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the producer price index, a measure used to indicate the wholesale information uh, Inflation increased 0.8% in May and almost 11% over the past year. That makes it uh, six months in the row for a double-digit gain on PPI year-on-year. And data from last week shows the Consumer Price Index, which is another important gauge for inflation, has increased 8.6% year-on-year. That's a record high since the 1980s. So, Professor John, let me go to you. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Janet Yellen said in June that uh, some reductions of the tariff may be warranted that it could bring down prices and we've also seen research from the Peterson Peterson Institute for International Economics a two percentage point tariff equivalent reduction could deliver a one-time reduction of prices of 1.3 percentage points in uh, inflation so uh, but when the uh, former president Donald Trump started the trade war did his advisors foresee the impact of these tariffs on inflation well, um, when these tariffs are imposed, it was uh, designed to uh, sort of used as a tool uh, against the trade war against China. Um, now, the problem is that it, this boils down to who are actually paying these tariffs. Um, and in economics, we have this notion of, you know, the tax incidence in this case. In other words, the demand side or supply side. Typically, when the products are very uh, demand inelastic. That means um, that consumers are less sensitive to the price increases. For example, for products that people are addicted to, you know, like cigarettes, you know, liquor, that kind of thing, usually the extra tax burden is borne by the demand side. In other words, the, uh, the consumers are paying for it. Um, whereas the, um, you know, when the demand is, elastic, uh, is, is quite elastic, the supply side 
uh, bear some of the burden of the tax uh, incidents. Now, in this case, it's very clear that exports from China are very much in demand in the United States. I mean, you look at the, uh, the exports numbers uh, over the last two years, particularly this year, it's been you know, extremely strong. Last year, it was uh, over half a trillion dollars of uh, you know, Chinese exports to the United States. So I think you know, there are several studies out there already that have demonstrated that the tax burden I mean, the tariff burden is actually shared by American consumers. On average, they're paying something like you know four hundred to seven hundred dollars per household on a yearly basis. So you know, I think these taxes, these tariffs, should be gone a long time ago. You know, it, it has it should be in, uh, eliminated at the time that Biden's administration came to power. And I think at this point, uh, it's already too little, too late. But I think it still helps. You know, four hundred to seven hundred dollars a month. Uh, on a yearly basis for an American household still means a lot. So, so I think um, you know we are really uh, into a, <coughs> a time that these tariffs should be should be gone. Actually, the calculations uh, may differ according to different institutions because uh, I've seen numbers such as a, even a thousand U.S. dollars a year for the average American household. But anyway, um, um, clearly the tariffs have not achieved its intended goals set in the first place, for instance, to bring jobs to America, to prevent so-called IP theft by China, or to reduce trade deficit. And yet, it seems that according to some um, recent polls that 70 uh, percent, for instance, uh, an April poll by a Washington-based think tank shows that 70 percent of respondents indicated support for the tariff for the trade war. And that is this year. Um, so. Mr. Tolson, let me go to you. Why do you think there is still such a high support, if these numbers are correct, for the tariffs, for the trade war, which has not uh, achieved its intended purposes? I think there's probably two different things going on here at the same time, one of which the American public cares a lot about, the other which they don't really care that much about, even though they will have an opinion on it. Inflation is a huge deal. It is a massive issue in the United States. Everyone's getting hit every day. So that's a big part of what you know this conversation is about. The other issue is the one about the tariffs in general, the relationship with China in general. And in that one, the public isn't really engaged in that. They're not going to vote on that. This is one where the government is really going to do what it wants. And that appears to be a larger story of a, let's call it realignment, rethinking of the relationship between the United States and China in the area of economics and trade across the board. And I think U.S. Trade Representative Tai has talked about that. So that's kind of a longer thing that's been going on. And I don't see that having changed in the last, you know, since Biden took over. That position evolution of U.S. thinking hasn't really shifted significantly. However, the inflation issue, yeah, absolutely. That's the public cares. And I think we're going to see some action on that. I think the tariffs are probably going to be taken down to some degree because of that issue alone. Um, it's pretty huge. Mm. A recent study commissioned by the U.S.-China Business Council argues that the trade war reduced economic growth in the United States and cost the U.S. over 250,000 jobs. At the same time, trade with China and the trade deficit actually has uh, hit record highs since the trade war began. So, um, Professor Gong, why would the U.S. government be unwilling to or still weighing the pros and cons to lift some of the tariffs? What exactly are they uh, hesitating? What exactly is holding them back? 
Well, my, my reading of the news lately, lately is because uh, I think USTR uh, Thai is sort of opposed to uh, eliminating these tariffs. I think she is really th thinking from her little perspective as a USTR, that is, you know, using these tools uh, to achieve these uh, trade agenda goals. Um, which actually, you know, doesn't have really an impact on Chinese government at all. I think in the initially, when the trade war was first started by by the, by, by the uh, Trump administration, I think the Chinese government was very concerned about the the reduced exports to the United States, uh, the impact of jobs uh, in in China. Now what we're starting to see that you know on the on the demand side, you know, it hasn't really changed much, other than consumers are paying higher prices. Um, so. There's less of an impact, really, on uh, China's jobs on on, on uh, the production side here. So I think the government's uh, position or the attitude, at least, has changed a little bit. It doesn't view these tariffs so much uh, as uh, impacting China's side too much. So um, I don't think you know these policies would be effective at all. So uh, you know I think on this side, it would probably thinking that you know do whatever you want. We really don't care anymore. So. Um, so I think you know that's that's a dilemma that the uh, Thai USTR Thai is is getting into. So I think her thinking has to be um, changing a little bit. In other words, I think the tariff as a as a policy tool, actually uh, in general as a policy tool, doesn't work too much other than hurting. Um, economics on both sides, uh, mostly in okay. this case on the United States side, mm -hmm. depending on what kind of exports mm -hmm. uh, you know, China produces. Yeah, the trade representative Ms. Tsai also said that the U.S. needs to keep the tariffs to have more leverage against China in trade negotiations. But previously, she's also talked about durable coexistence with China and says she aimed to reduce China-U.S. tensions. Mr. Towson, is she contradicting herself? No, I, I think there's all. It, it's a funny combination of. You know, when this began a couple of years ago under President Trump, it was about trade for about like eight days. Trade, let's use tariffs, that was discussion. But very quickly it became clear that this was all about a lot more than trade. This was about technology, technology transfer, long-term valuable technologies. And the tariffs were not being used on things like soybeans, they were used on things like technology. So there, there's a couple issues here going on at the same time, and tariffs just seem to be a tool that are used in things that are unrelated to trade, really. Um, so I think you're hearing this sort of discussion of, look, there's a, there's a relationship that's being reset between the U.S. and China after 20-plus years. It involves trade, for sure. It involves technology, which is a huge part of it. It involves media and information. There's a lot going on in this. And increasingly, we're seeing financial services and other banking issues coming into this. All of that is sort of being reset. And the go-to tool often is tariffs, even though it, maybe it's not so much about trade. And I think, I think Trade Representative Tai has, has sort of spoken well in the sense of this is a larger realignment. Uh, it's it's long past about just trade in any set of goods. Um, Secretary Yellen is much more talking about how does trade impact inflation right now. So that you kind of see the two stories overlapping. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I think we'll see tariffs continue as a tool regardless.
All right. Many thanks. We have to leave it there. John Gong from the University of International Business and Economics joining us from Tel Aviv and Jeffrey Towson, consultant and host of Tech Strategy Podcast. We'll take a short break and when we come back, the UN has a new rule aimed at boosting accountability among the, among the permanent members of the Security Council. Will it work or just create more bureaucracy and uh, public opinion fiasco? Stay tuned. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. For the first time in history, permanent members of the United Nations Security Council had to explain themselves after casting a veto vote. That's what Russia and China did on June the 8th after they vetoed a draft resolution to impose strict new sanctions on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. The meeting was held under a new initiative co-sponsored by the U.S. and pushed through in April that requires the UN General Assembly to examine any veto vote by one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. The new rule is aimed at strengthening multilateralism, but will it achieve its intended goals? Why does the US, which has cast a total of 86 votes so far, sponsor such a mechanism? I'm pleased to be joined still from Tel Aviv, Israel, by Professor Jiang Gong from the University of International Business and Economics, and from Nevada, the U.S., by Professor Pu Xiaoyu from the Department of Political Science at the University of Nevada. Renal, gentlemen, welcome to the point. So, a bit of a background: the China and Russia vetoed a draft resolution from UN Security Council on May the 26th to tighten sanctions against the DPRK. Uh, that resolution was tabled by the United States, and the resolution called for more sanctions against the country, a position that was deemed not helpful to resolving the situation on the peninsula, hence China's veto vote, for instance. And then last week, on June the 8th, according to the new rule that I mentioned, the UN General Assembly held a meeting for countries, not just China and Russia, but other countries who had a point to make to express their views on the issue. And the new rule, as I said, stemmed from a resolution tabled by Liechtenstein and co-sponsored by a total of 83 countries, including the United States, in April. The initiative is called Standing Mandate for a General Assembly Debate when a veto is cast in the Security Council. So basically, if you cast a veto vote, you have to explain later in a much bigger meeting with all members of the UN who wish to have their uh, point uh, heard and elaborated. Um, Professor John, help us understand the new rule. Will uh, the veto vote be undone? What kind of difference is it expected to make? I think the purpose is to uh, let other members of the United Nations outside of the Security Council to have a voice in the discussion, in the debate. Um, previously, um, the, the, uh, any of the five permanent security members can veto things and, and that's about it and that's it. Um, now it ha they have to be, you know, going to the General Assembly and uh, uh, explain their positions, uh, as well as listening to 
other uh, members of the United Nations to express their opinions. So I think it's a, I, I, I wouldn't frame this as something, you know, really bad. I think uh, it, what, what it means is that um, it is intended to uh, perhaps to um, make the uh, permanent members of Security Council who are entitled to vetoing things um, to be in a more responsible position. Um, I think, uh, you know, in, in terms of not just um, be very careful about casting their vote, but also um, in terms of uh, expressing very explicitly their opinions and letting other members to uh, express their opinions as well. So, so I think it's a it's a it's a it's a development that it's a, a part of the reform at the United Nations. Um, but, but I think the timing-wise, it's a little bit um, uh, suspicious. I think. I think, and as you pointed out, the United States has casted most vetoes uh, since the 1970s. Um, and many times uh, the veto is by itself. It's, it's a long, it's called a long veto. Um, uh, on this particular issue, uh, China hasn't, you know, voted uh, as well as Russia actually uh, cast any veto votes on the Korean uh, issue, the North Korean nuclear issue, any time you know in the last nine or ten uh, uh, votes. So this time, I don't think their positions have actually changed. So what they say is that it's out of you know the sanctions policy needs to be reassessed, and particularly this time, you know, there's a very severe COVID uh, infection going on in North Korea. And so I think that, you know, the consideration is okay. really out of a uh, humanitarian nature. All right. Well, uh, the numbers that, uh, that I am able to find out from the official website of the United States is this. Okay, so since the first veto power was introduced in 19, a veto vote was cast in 1946, um, the United States has used a veto a total of 86 times. By comparison, the USSR, the former Soviet Union, right. later Russia combined has used it 143 times. That's a lot, but 29 times by Russia since the USSR collapsed uh, in the 1990s. The UK used veto around 30 times. China and France used veto around 18 times respectively. Right. So the United States itself Six, actually used a lot of veto as we can right. count, 86 times since 1946. Um, and that is exactly my next question, Professor Pu. Uh, when the United States co-sponsors such a initiative, does it mean that it will not use the veto uh, it will not use the veto power in the future on itself by itself, or does it also want to have that opportunity to explain its veto vote and have other people expressing their different opinions as well? Yeah, I uh, I agree, uh, and uh, I think uh, the United States uh, will continue using its veto power because because uh, uh, the UN Security Council is the only. Uh, UN body with uh, authority to issue binding resolutions. It has a very unique and huge responsibility. So uh, uh, it reflects the, the thinking that to, to maintain international peace and stability, there must be a, some kind of great power consensus. But on the other hand, there's a long uh, sort of long-term sort of concerns about uh, uh, permanent members uh, abuse its veto powers. So. A uh, small country, uh, middle powers, they have long term, they, they, they have always expressed some kind of concerns. So I think on the one hand, uh, United, Na United States will continue to use its veto power, but on the other hand, there are concerns, there are voices calling for some kind of double checking of uh, the use of veto power in the future.
But why now? The, the timing is really interesting and uh, because uh, this initiative, this new initiative was, uh, as I said, tabled by Liechtenstein, but co-sponsored by the United States. Liechtenstein says it has been trying to push through this initiative since the past two years. Uh, Professor Zhang, why do you think right now this is pushed through? And by the way, it's co-sponsored by 83 uh, countries. We have 193 members of the United Nations, so a lot of countries are actually not on board, including very important countries countries such, such as Brazil, such as India, actually, and Indonesia, for instance, have uh, very different opinions about the so-called reform. Uh, why do you think all of a sudden the United States is concerned of certain countries' sh so-called shameful pattern of abusing its veto privilege? Professor Gong. Well, I, I guess I think the, uh, Washington probably, yeah, I think yeah, I think I think Washington probably thinks that the time has changed. And if you look at the uh, the, the the history of the, the the veto votes by by Washington, as you point out, eighty some uh, votes, a lot of times were in the past in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, related to the issue uh, 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 to the issue in, in the country that I'm staying right now. Right. Uh, you know, with, with Israel actually. Um, so I think uh, that issue has probably gone away. Um, and I think Washington probably sees that. Uh, um, you know, moving forward, uh, you know, that that's becoming less of an issue. The United States uh, <coughs> is less needed to uh, cast a veto vote like this. Um, and it's, you know, moving forward, it's probably more likely that Russia is going to uh, have to veto a, a lot of things uh, that is going to be proposed at the United Nations. So I think overall, you know, Washington probably thinks that time has changed. Um, there's less of a need in the future for, for it to to veto things, so so that's why I think it's it's on board with this um, uh, this uh, this proposal. Um, I, I think in general there's a there's a there's some voice of concern, there's a con voice of consensus actually that um, some of the vetoes uh, veto votes are being uh, abused um, for other national interests, other interests, um, and, and certainly that raises uh, very. Uh, uh, very much dissatisfaction among union mem uh, United Nations members. So, uh, so I think the um, you know the you mentioned Liechtenstein as being the uh, uh, sponsor, major sponsor of this bill. Uh, I think it just represents the, uh, the the voice we're talking about that uh, you know trying to help to hold those countries accountable for their veto powers. Um, and um, and I think uh, this represents a opportunistic moment for the United States to jump in and sponsor it. Um, I, I think um, you know probably things may not move as Washington thinks. Um, there will be time. I think there will be time very soon that the U.S. will be itself into this situation that has to veto things, and and probably has a second thought about this. Mm. That's, but that's okay. I mean, yeah, the, that's the, very the interesting. Um, I, I mean, yeah, that's very interesting. That doesn't change things. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting because there are countries who have clear different opinions on this matter. For instance, Indonesia's delegate speaking after the initiative was pushed through voiced his regret that efforts to improve transparency of the Security Council was conducted through a non inclusive and non-transparent process. He denounced the take it or leave it approach imposed during its drafting, a process that lacked any room for negotiations. And then India's delegate called this an ironic move because when India proposed reforms to the Security Council, uh, people uh, dismissed it, you know, denied it, saying 
these are piecemeal um, processes. But when Liechtenstein pushed through this veto explanation vote, then people say, ah, oh, this is to improve transparency, then this is not a piecemeal initiative anymore. So India was not happy with this. Professor Pu, how do you look at the different opinions that are out there as to whether or not such a meeting to explain a veto vote will actually enhance unity, enhance the effectiveness of the UN Security Council instead of serving certain countries' geopolitical interests? Uh, I think that uh, there's always some sort of a tension between representativeness and efficiency, between international legitimacy and efficiency or effectiveness when we think about the United Nations or global governance. So uh, if, if each country has a vote, I mean like a general assembly or the, the historical case of League of Nations, there will be no efficiency. So that's why it's still important to have a, some kind of great power consensus. So respect some kind of uh, veto power of, of permanent members. But on the other hand, uh, the, the, the diverse voices for emerging powers are also important. For this particular uh, uh, issue, I think uh, there might be some, some, some kind of timing uh, in a sense that because of Russia's so veto of uh, resolution early this year's, I think that may be okay. uh, a little bit shocking so that maybe the U.S. calculated it might be a good opportunity right. to mobilize support okay. in the short term. That well, might be right. relevant here. Right. This is only beginning of this new practice. Of course, we still have to wait and see whether this will make people be more make countries more responsible, including everybody on the UN Security Council before they cast a veto vote. Or this will be more of a fiasco for public opinion to uh, isolate, to condemn countries that uh, are using veto vote. Let's see. Let's see. Many thanks anyway to Professor Zhang Gong joining us from Tel Aviv from the University of International Business and Economics and Professor Pu Xiaoyu joining us from the University of Nevada, Reno. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. Welcome to My Stories of Chinese Characters, Season 2. I'm Uncle Han Zi. This season, we will travel to different destinations and experience the different sceneries throughout the year. This season, we will taste delicious foods. Delicious, how sure. Feel the delicacy of Chinese silk. Uh, some people say that this is the world's first computer because each one of these is an instruction and enjoy the local architectures. Yes, it's a big house, Chuanzhou's Wu Cuo. We will feel a sense of camaraderie on the slow train. And feel the excitement of the snowfields. Yes! 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 I'm Uncle Han Zi. This season, we will take you to see a different China from the perspective of Chinese characters. Meet us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms, or on our website, 
radio.cgtn.com.